Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net, episode 150, The Testament of Solomon and the Solomonic Tradition, part one. Well, gentle listener, in this episode, we wanted to discuss the Testament of Solomon. Schwartz describes this gem of a text as, quote, a Greek magical novella written in the first few centuries CE, perhaps by a Greek-speaking Christian familiar with Jewish magical lore. The text is a narrative in which Solomon traps the demons for the purpose of building the Jerusalem temple and revealing magical secrets. End of quote. So it has magic, it has early Christian lore, and older Jewish lore. It has the figure of King Solomon, whose name is attached to so many books of addressative ritual across the Abrahamic spectrum. In short, this work has everything, and we need to talk about it here on the Schwepp. However, the figure of Solomon is so evocative, so incrustated with legends and amazing stories that a single episode was never going to be enough to do justice, either to Solomon himself or to his testament. So we're going for a two-episode format, and even this will largely be an exercise in whetting our appetites for more Solomonic esoteric delights to come. Who is King Solomon? Well, he's the son of King David. He's the king of the ancient kingdom of Israel. Some scholars doubt that there ever was a King Solomon, but the general idea is that sometime in the 10th century BCE, there was a Jewish king called something like Shlomo, famous for having built the first temple to the Jewish god at Jerusalem, the city which was at that time the capital of the Bronze Age Hebrew kingdom. See episode 11 of the podcast for some notes on that interesting period in early Jewish history. The Solomonic Temple, the first temple, as it is also known, as opposed to the second temple, has never been excavated, so we can't really verify much about it from an archaeological perspective. But the scriptures and lore give us an awful lot of legendary material to go on, such that... The Temple of Solomon and its various dimensions, different parts, its furnishings, and so on, as delineated with great detail in the first book of Kings, in the Hebrew Christian scriptures, became a popular locus for esoteric interpretation. We've seen this in Clement of Alexandria, in part one of our special episode exploring book five of the Stromates, and we'll see it again when we get to Freemasonry. For Freemasonry, the temple is a major element of their mythic worldview, and there's a lot of Solomon's temple in esoteric traditions between these two historical poles of Clement and the Masons. But Solomon is so much more than the builder of the temple. He is the commander of angels, of demons, of jinn, depending on which school of thought you belong to, and he actually got these entities to do the work of building for him. The temple was not raised by human hands. He often commands the daimones. We'll use that sort of neutral term to cover all the various types of non-human intelligences discussed in different traditions, right? He often commands the daimones using a magic ring or his seal or one of his magic books, of which there are very, very many. In fact, in the last episode, we already saw this Solomonic magic book theme. The book Harazim was passed down from Noah until... As Morgan translates it, quote, Solomon the king arose, 
and the books of the mysteries were disclosed to him, and he became very learned in books of understanding, and so ruled over everything he desired, over all the spirits and the demons that wander over the world. And from the wisdom of this book, he imprisoned and released and sent out and brought in and built and prospered. For many books were handed down to him. End of quote. So Solomon is wise and he has lots of magic books, but he uses them among other purposes for building, that is building the first temple. Now the the text known as the Testament of Solomon is most likely roughly, very roughly contemporaneous with the Sefer HaRazim and certainly inhabits a thought world with many similarities to that great book of magic. In fact, although its overarching narrative structure is much more, well, narrative than the book of the mysteries, the Testament of Solomon also features loads and loads of magic mostly astral medical magical practices aimed at nullifying the different evil effects of given demons who are also associated with stellar bodies by using the right angelic names also like the sefer harazim the testament of solomon is most likely uh, and here i'm boiling down a massive scholarly debate which isn't really closed but which has something like a consensus ever since macown published his epic critical edition of the text in 1922 and made some quite measured and sensible comments. This text is most likely a Greek Christian reworking of lots and lots of earlier traditional materials, Jewish materials, into a new package. In this case, a lot of the lore and worldview type stuff, uh, which goes into the Testament of Solomon, reminds scholars of first century Jewish thought from Palestine in a general sort of way. There are echoes of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the text, for example, and much other material, which has kind of a late Second Temple feel to it, but rewritten by a Greek-speaking Christian author or authors into a Christian version of the story. There is a theory about Hebrew originals, um, to the text or parts of the text, but whether this is the case or not, it's pretty widely agreed that the text as we know it, the Testament of Solomon, was composed in Greek. McCown dates the text to the early third century. A range from the first to the third seems to satisfy most scholars, although there's always someone who wants to make it a late sort of East Roman production. Also, kind of like the Sefer HaRazim, the work exists in tons of very different manuscripts and has been pieced together into a single whole, aiming at being as close to the original source text as it can be, and most likely not too far off, in this case by Macown. Unlike the Sefer HaRazim, however, most of our manuscripts of the Testament of Solomon are early modern. In other words, this is not pieced together from ancient papyri, although a few papyrus fragments do survive. This text was copied in various versions right up until the advent of widespread printing, and often in very divergent contexts. One 16th century manuscript survives from the monastery library of Mount Athos. Another one, Harleian manuscript 5596, dates from the 15th century and contains an incomplete version of the testament, spiced up with lots of extra astral, magical, and demonological lore by an anonymous late medieval practitioner-scholar, and bound together 
with the text known as Clavicula Solomonis, or Lesser Key of Solomon, one of the most popular grimoires of the Latinate High Middle Ages. We mentioned just these two manuscripts to indicate both that this text went on to have a long life in what we might call the ecclesiastical mainstream, if Mount Athos is mainstream. It certainly is a prestigious center for Orthodox Christianity, although, as we know, a lot of rather well interesting and esoteric thought and practice seems to have found a welcome there. So it exists and is transmitted in that context, but it also has a life in the world of magic books, or if you like, in the Solomonic magical tradition, right? Where the text of the Testament gets mixed up with more practical recipes and an actual piece of uh, proper addressative magic, the key of Solomon. Uh, for more on these manuscripts, you can see the introduction by Dooling in Volume 1 of Charles Worth's Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, pages 937 to 939, for more on the manuscripts. And Dooling is the translation we'll be citing in this episode. And uh, keep listening for some attempt at making that idea of a Solomonic magical tradition less vague and more concretely historical. This is no simple task, it turns out. Because when you start to look at the traditions surrounding King Solomon, you end up in territory not unfamiliar from the traditional mystiques surrounding names like Pythagoras and Hermes, both very familiar to listeners to this podcast. Solomonic can function almost like a genre or flavor rather than a concrete tradition of the sort scholars can trace. Just as with those two, Pythagoras and Hermes, it's possible, and indeed it's a rampant practice, to talk of a Solomonic tradition in a really vague way. And just as with those two, we have many, many books with the name Solomon written in the author section. Just as whenever we hear the words Pythagorean tradition, we expect something likely in the realm of esoteric speculations about number, writ broadly, and whenever we hear something about the Hermetic tradition, we expect either some astrological or alchemical technical material, some late antique theosophical speculation, or a charming combination of the two. So when we hear Solomonic tradition, we are very likely in for something to do with complicated angelologies, complicated demonologies, or both, and lore associated with commanding or otherwise negotiating these daimonic entities. Still, that's pretty broad, and there's a lot more to the Solomonic mystique than just the angels and demons. There are the legends of the building of the temple. There's the magic ring, along with his many other magical items, notably his seal, the seal of Solomon, which has the reputation for being the sovereign sigil when trying to command daimonic entities. Although there's a lot of different seals of Solomon out there in the literature, so if you're planning on getting practical with his material, you want to make sure you have the right one. And in the Islamicate tradition, his flying carpet, to mention just a few of his many famous magical items. There is the story of his love affair with the Queen of Sheba, which is one of the most uh, fertile sort of myth cycles in the Abrahamic world. And the related story of how Solomon, who was the archetypally wise king, ended up being seduced by love into worship of foreign idols and falling from the true faith, making him, among other things, the prototype of the Faust figure in the Western canon. 
Now, people often ask me, it happens a lot. They say, Earl, I love me some Solomonic grimoire, but how far back does the figure of Solomon, the tragically flawed magician who can command the daimones, actually go? And I always say the same thing. We need to go back to the Bible. If you will open up your Bibles at 1 Kings 4, 20, and keep reading till 4.34, you will find the basic biblical text upon which so much later Solomonic tradition expands. Keen listeners will recall how the legend of the Watchers, uh, expounded in First Enoch, which provides the background to so much Western esoteric uh, lore about angels and demons, has as its starting point the brief passage from Genesis 6-4. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. See episode 51 for a refresher on the Enochic textual tradition, if you need one. Well, the story of Solomon in the book of Kings is a lot longer than that, but it it similarly contains a compressed account featuring many of the elements which would be expanded massively in the later traditions about Solomon. Solomon is the son of King David. We learn of his life in the first book of Kings, but he is also, like his father, an author. In fact, he's the author of part of the scriptures, the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and best of all, the erotic poetry of the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon are all canonical scripture for Jews and Christians and are all attributed to Solomon. There's also a massive pseudepigraphic tradition attributed to him, including the Odes of Solomon and the Testament of Solomon, to which we will eventually get, I promise. What we also find is endless references to other books of Solomon that are not necessarily real books, and we'll get to that as well. Here is what the author of First Kings tells us of the great Solomon, starting from 1 Kings 4.20. I'm quoting the King James Version as always on the Schwepp, preferring sonority to accuracy in translation. And as we go through this text, I'm going to leave out the bits about, for example, how many bushels of grain, how many fat oxen, soldiers, chariots, and so forth Solomon was in charge of. It was a lot of all of these things, take my word for it. There's a lot of time spent on describing how rich he was. But we're just going to try to concentrate on the interesting points for the later esoteric Solomon who comes into being in the tradition. Quote, And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines and unto the border of Egypt. They brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the East Country and all the wisdom of Egypt. And he spake three thousand proverbs, and his songs were a thousand and five. And he spake of trees from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. He spake also of beasts, and of fowl, and of creeping things, and of fishes, And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth, which had heard of his wisdom. So Solomon is very wise. Solomon also seems to be a kind of uh, natural philosopher along Aristotelian lines in the sense that he speaks of all these different kind of uh, 
biological forms, and his wisdom concerning them is considered worth traveling to hear. Now, the next major thing that happens in the story of Solomon is that he contacts Hiram, who is the king of Tyre, or Tyre, the great Phoenician city, and tells him that he has purposed to build a house for the Lord. And Hiram says, good idea, I shall supply the cedar wood. Now, the whole story of Hiram and Solomon's friendship or relationship becomes very important in the text and very important in the foundational myths of Freemasonry, which we will get to in good time. But for now, we note it in passing. In chapters 6 to 7, we get the dimensions and furnishings of the temple. And this goes on and on and on, but I'll give you a little taste of it. And the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof was threescore cubits, and the breadth thereof was twenty cubits, and the height thereof thirty cubits. And the porch before the temple of the house, twenty cubits was the length thereof, according to the breadth of the house, and ten cubits was the breadth thereof before the house. And for the house he made windows of narrow lights. And against the wall of the house he built chambers round about, against the walls of the house round about, both of the temple and of the oracle. And he made chambers round about, etc., etc., etc. He furnishes the place. There's all kinds of cool candlesticks and stuff like this. Now, needless to say, all of these sort of dimensions were appearing as they do very cryptically, uh, without much explanation, in what many people regarded as sacred scripture, provided endless matter for esoteric speculation based on number, based on macrocosm, microcosm, based on various forms of supposed esoteric messaging in the text, and so on. So this passage and its continuation which I invite you to check out if you can handle all the cubits, is a, a very important text for Western esotericism going forward. Now, once work is done on the temple, Solomon orders that the Ark of the Covenant be brought in and installed in the Holy of Holies of the temple. No more the wandering god of a pastoral people, Yahweh now has a permanent home. And here we get a fantastic passage which has some proper creepy vibes. This is 1 Kings 8, 9 to 13. There was nothing in the ark, save the two tables of stone, which Moses had put there at Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Then spake Solomon, the Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I have surely built thee an house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide in forever. End of quote. Now that is a very interesting passage. God dwelling in a cloud of thick darkness seems ripe for interpretation as a kind of proto-apophatic theological statement, doesn't it? And that is exactly how it was interpreted again and again in a long and storied 
Western esoteric tradition, particularly in the Christian world. So we, we shall see the, the cloud upon the sanctuary return at more than one juncture in the course of this podcast. Now, in chapter 10, 1 through 6, we first meet the Queen of Sheba. Now, this Sheba is most likely referring to the South Arabian kingdom of Saba, which encompassed at the time parts of what's now Ethiopia and the Yemen. Quote, And when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions, and she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom, and the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel, and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. End of quote. Now, the story of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba doesn't come in for much elaboration here in the scriptural text. They go on to exchange uh, ridiculously valuable gifts, and she heads back home to Sheba, dumbfounded by Solomon's magnificence. But in the lore, this becomes an epic love story. And indeed, the royal house of Ethiopia, to which belonged Ja Rastafari, Haile Selassie I, conquering lion of Judah, was descended from the Queen of Sheba, who, of course, bore a child to Solomon, but that is a story for another time. Now, in the next biblical chapter, chapter 11 of 1 Kings, we learned that it, it was Solomon's penchant for foreign concubines that led to his downfall, a transgression presented in the scriptures as being a betrayal of ancient Hebrew xenophobia. Uh, but this transgression would be reinterpreted again and again in the course of the development of the Solomonic traditions. Quote, But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh. I should just say here that he's been married for some time to the daughter of Pharaoh. Uh, I didn't mention that before. Anyway, back to our quote, Women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonian, and Hittites. Of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had seven hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father." Then did Solomon build an high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. 
And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, Forasmuch as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend thy kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. Notwithstanding in thy days I will not do it, for David thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. And the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the king's seed in Edom. End of quote. There follows here a long account of various local kings who become Solomon's enemies or become enemies of the Israeli state, whatever. Of all the subsequent history of warfare that is described in this book, what is made of it by the author is that this is God's punishing Solomon for his idolatrous practices, but not punishing him to the point where he destroys Israel because David, his father, had been such a great guy. If we read right to the end of chapter 11, we find out what happened to Solomon in the end. So this is chapter 11, 41 to 43, quote, and the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his stead. End of quote. So that's the end of Solomon. But what is this book, the Acts of Solomon, that records all he did? Well, no one knows. So this can serve as the first of many, many references to books about or by, or in the possession of, Solomon, which either no longer exist, or maybe never existed in the first place. Like the other books of wisdom that he possessed mentioned at the beginning of the Sefer HaRazim, right? With the caveat that this book, the Sefer HaRazim, was of course the best of all the books he possessed. Nevertheless, it mentions there were other books of mysteries in his possession. So these scriptural passages shed some light on what makes Solomon special, and on his life story. He is notoriously wise. He builds the temple. Though in the biblical account, it is explicitly ordinary humans who do the building. It isn't in the uh, lore that we shall be exploring. He builds it with the help of his colleague, King Hiram of Tyre, who supplies the cedars and stuff like that. He meets this foreign queen of Sheba, who is very impressed by him. He has numerous concubines from foreign nations, which leads to the eventual downfall of his kingdom. Along the way, he did some other stuff, like the whole thing with chopping the baby in half that you're probably familiar with. We've just skipped some stuff. Plus, the thing about the cloud in the sanctuary, which we just put in because it's one of those delightful touches that the Hebrew scriptures continually surprise us with. Just when you think it's all measurements in cubits and enormous amounts of golden tableware, we get an incident where the priests can't serve in the temple because God is there in the form of some kind of freaky darkness. So how do we get from that scriptural account to the Solomon of the Solomonic tradition? There are actually a lot of holes in our knowledge of how this story develops. Between whenever the, the books of Kings were written down, sometime in maybe the 7th century BCE or the 6th, when these um, Hebrew scribes are looking back on their history and kind of reformulating it as sacred history, right? From then until about the 1st century CE, 
so a good six, seven, maybe 800 years, we don't have a lot of help from the textual tradition. Uh, but it's clear that the Solomonic legend must have been developing a pace in the meantime, because when we find it first mentioned in the first century, it's clearly um, shows some of its formative character. There's a reference in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, which might be to the extended Solomon legend, but it doesn't give us much um, to go on. But in Josephus's Jewish Antiquities, we get a glimpse of what is clearly a highly developed Solomonic tradition with a lot of the trimmings we will come to expect. Listeners will recall Josephus, the Jewish historian uh, turncoat who went to Rome with the conquering armies who had destroyed his homeland in the uprising in the first century, right? And wrecked the second temple, went with them and wrote elegant books in Greek detailing the greatness of the Jews for the Hellenized audience he was hanging out with at the court of the Roman emperor Vespasian, the very man who had presided over the destruction of the temple and reigned from 69 to 79 CE. Uh, Josephus's work featured in episode 49 of the podcast, where he gave us crucial information about Judaism at the end of the second temple period. But Josephus is just a very, very important source for Judaism from a period where we know very little about Judaism. Here is part of his long discussion of Solomon with a few bits left out. Quote, now so great was the prudence and wisdom which God granted Solomon that he surpassed the ancients and even the Egyptians who are said to excel all men in understanding, were not only when compared with him a little inferior, but proved to fall sh far short of the king in sagacity. He also surpassed and excelled in wisdom those who in his own time had a reputation for cleverness among the Hebrews. There was no form of nature with which he was not acquainted, or which he passed over without examining, but he studied them all philosophically and revealed the most complete knowledge of their several properties. As an aside, you can see here that we're now speaking the language of Hellenized Judaism and mentioning things like philosophy, which haven't even been thought of in the biblical account, right? And God granted him knowledge of the art used against demons for the benefit and healing of men. He also composed incantations by which illnesses are relieved and left behind forms of exorcisms with which those possessed by demons drive them out, never to return. And this kind of cure is of very great power among us to this day, and I have seen a certain Eleazar, a countryman of mine, in the presence of Vespasian, his sons, tribunes, and a number of other soldiers, free men, possessed by demons. And this was the manner of the cure. He put to the nose of the possessed man a ring which had under its seal one of the roots prescribed by Solomon. And then, as the man smelled it, he drew out the demon through his nostrils. And when the man at once fell down, adjured the demon never to come back into him, speaking Solomon's name and reciting the incantations which he had composed. Then, wishing to convince the bystanders and prove to them that he had this power, Eleazar placed a cup or foot basin full of water a little way off and commanded the demon as it went out of the man to overturn it and make known to the spectators that he had left the man. And when this was done, the understanding and wisdom of Solomon were clearly revealed on account of which 
we've been induced to speak of these things in order that all men may know the greatness of his nature and how God favored him, and that no one under the sun may be ignorant of this king's surpassing virtue of every kind. End of quote. Now this is the Solomon we've been waiting for. His magic ring, with its magic seal, is there. In the narrative in Josephus, it's the special root which is at least partly responsible for the exorcism, but okay, many magical recipes that we know from the literature require multiple talismanic items and ingredients to work. The ring with its seal, able to command demons at will, will become a key piece of Solomonic accoutrement. And so having a ring like Solomon's, with the right seal on it, would obviously be a desirable item for any addressative practitioner to possess. The bowls of water that the demon knocks over are not exactly total classics of Solomonic tradition, but they do have their later echoes, as we shall see. Last but not least, we see here a new concern with demons, possession by them, and the accompanying need for exorcism. I say new. Uh, we certainly don't find that in the uh, biblical account. And as we've remarked before in the podcast, this interest in exorcism or even the idea of exorcism, was a new thing in Greco-Roman culture at this time, and seemingly came along with the widespread importation of Near Eastern beliefs in the early centuries CE, such that by the 3rd century CE, we find even polytheists like Porphyry active in exorcising demons, daimones, see episode 125 of the podcast, whereas in earlier centuries, Mediterranean polytheists of the Greco-Roman stamp didn't even have a concept of daimonic possession or demonic possession. Possession, sure, but this was enthusiasmos, divine possession. And while that might be scary if you encountered it, it wasn't something you wanted to stop through invoking names of power or anything like that. Well, it is now. In Josephus, the exorcist, quote, adjured the demon never to come back into him, speaking Solomon's name and reciting the incantations which he had composed, he being Solomon. End of quote. Solomon's name, like Jesus' name in the early Christian magical tradition, and indeed in the New Testament accounts of exorcisms, right, was a sovereign name of power when attempting to get rid of unwanted demonic occupants. And in much later antiquity, sometime perhaps in the 6th century or thereabouts, we have a number of incantation bowls that mention Solomon's name in exactly this context, which brings, again, our uh, Solomonic tradition into the ambit of other esoteric Jewish traditions we've been talking about. Now that we've arrived at this King Solomon, this King Solomon of the first century CE, who clearly has an established character as a ring-wielding commander of demons, we can finally talk about his testament. Join us next time for an exploration of that text and a preview of some of the many shoots which sprung from the fertile tree of Solomonic legend in later Western esotericism. Until then, be like the Seal of Solomon, which has the power to command all the demons and jinn, and stay esoteric. Esoteric.